the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. So I heard so much great feedback from everybody about the 2023 SCCM PharmD Star Research episode. We're doing it again. Uh, but this time, it's at an emergency medicine-themed conference. So this episode highlights six pharmacists who presented research at SAEM, or the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, annual meeting in May 2023. Now, you might remember this meeting was the site for Empower RX um, conference covered here, highlighted here, um, emergency medicine, uh, pharmacotherapy with resuscitation conference. But these research abstracts were not presented there. They were presented at the SAEM annual meeting. So I'll introduce each pharmacist. They'll give an overview of the research followed by a brief Q&A. So it's, they're generally about 10 to 12 minutes each. Um, and one quick thing, uh, thanks to all who sent in nominations for the 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards. Uh, still time. Nominations end Friday, June 23rd at 11.59 Eastern, 23.59. So voting to start soon. Stay tuned. Uh, but we got six pharmacists, six awesome research studies. Without further delay, let's get going. Now, joining me now is Francisco Ibarra. Now, he is an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist at the Community Regional Medical Center and the adjunct assistant professor at the CHSU College of Medicine. Francisco, thanks so much for joining me. Let's hear some more about your study, Emergency Medicine Resident Perceptions of the Educational Impact of Emergency Medicine Clinical Pharmacists. Uh, thanks for having me out today. Yeah, so we'll talk about the study that I presented over at the SAME uh, annual conference. So the purpose of the study is essentially what the title signifies it to be. So you're probably wondering why it is that we wanted to do this. Well, when we take a look at the literature, the clinical value of emergency medicine clinical pharmacists is well established, but we're seeing that the educational value is not as much. So we can take a look at various National Society's position papers, for example, the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, or ASHP. So they do talk about that emergency medicine pharmacists should be involved in education of non-pharmacy personnel. They go on to also say that we're in a unique position because we can provide on-the-spot direct education, but they don't really get explicit about how we can actually be involved in the formal training of residents, whether it's going to be from a didactic standpoint, doing lectures, as well as to doing something of serving as their attending, say, in an elective standing. We also see then from medicine uh, organizations such as ASAP and ACMT, they focus more so on the clinical value, but don't really mention the educational value. So at our institution, we are looking for additional ways to get ourselves involved and really increase the impact of the emergency medicine clinical pharmacist. So we created a pharmacy elective 
um, back in June of 2019. Uh, today, we've had 16 residents, and this is an elective that's available only to third and fourth year residents at our institution. And we are affiliated with the University of California, San Francisco Fresno EM program. So this is a two to four week block elective um, that we do with the residents. Uh, some example learning objectives include identifying opportunities to coordinate with emergency medicine clinical pharmacists to optimize patient care, describe institutional policies and best practices, and designing therapeutic regimens. Um, so we created that elective. We had, uh, as I mentioned, the 16 residents to date. And now we wanted to do some kind of quality insurance to kind of see how the elective was going. So we ended up creating a, a voluntary anonymous web-based survey. It was submitted to all 44 residents uh, in June of last year. Survey included multiple choice, five-point Likert scale, and free response questions. Overall, our response rate was pretty good. We had 82%. Uh, so some of the things that we gathered from this survey results was essentially how many times they interact with us. So we asked the group, you know, in a one-week time period while working in the D, how many times do you typically consult or interact with the EM pharmacist? We saw that the first-year residents reported the least amount of interactions, and then we did see that as they went up in the residency of training, going up to the fourth year, we do see that the number of interactions significantly increased. So taking a look at why such a low response rate from the first year, it kind of does make sense. So our first years tend to spend a lot of time outside of the ED doing additional rotations, as well as since there's only one EM pharmacist on service at any given time, we have have to prioritize where we're going to provide our services. So we tend to spend time in the high acuity areas where the first years are not going to be, right? Because they're brand new, they're learning the ways, so they're not going to be up there as much. So that was expected. Um, we didn't tend to see as low numbers as we did do, um, but that is kind of expected. But the positive note of that is that we did see that there was an increased number of interactions as they went up in the years. We then asked them several other questions, such as, you know, rate to which you agree with the comments, I provide better care to my patients because I work with them. The EM pharmacists approve my ability to select appropriate agents, um, and they provide uh, different training than what a supervising physician does. So all in all, overall, the groups reported either strongly agree or agree. And then we also then broke it down based off of level of training to the folks then who reported strongly agree. We saw that for every question, the fourth years consistently reported strongly agree. So that was a great thing that we did notice. Um, for the folks who completed the survey and the pharmacy elective, we saw that the majority of them were PGY4s. So that definitely comes into play for interpreting those data and that we see that folks who did the elective were likely to report strongly agreeing all the responses. Um, we did ask them from free response questions about things that they had learned. Um, and they gave us a listing of their items, um, as well as some educational parts of the elective. Uh, so in all in all, we, we think that the results were very positive. We do believe that the EM pharmacists at our institutions are positively contributing to the EM residents' um, training um, and that we do provide a different type of training than what their supervised physician is providing. And then do we do support them in achieving pharmacotherapy milestones? What a, what a really cool study idea. And um and I'm, my first question is because you mentioned there were there have, there were a few survey questions. So out of all of those, when you when you got those results, you were diving into them. Was there an answer or response that that took you by surprise, either positively or I guess you'd say negatively or kind of surprisingly? Yeah, definitely. So for folks who had completed the elective as well as the survey. Um, we asked them to tell us some of the things that they learned. So a free response question. And some of the things that the folks wrote was, quote, how to be a great team member. 
So when I read that, I was like, wow, it was almost like a tear dropping down my eye. It was almost like uh, when my son stopped being the biter in class. <laughs> no, but for me, that really stood out just because part of the elective was not necessarily just to show them, you know, how to increase their knowledge of pharmacology, but also how they can be more cognizant of how they're interacting with other healthcare members. With us being there at the bedside with the group, we do have a unique perspective in that we do get to see how the physicians are interacting with the nurses or even ancillary staff. So we definitely made it an effort to making sure that they were aware about how they can interact with the team, how they can place orders to be more friendly for the nurses, how they could even use the word please more often as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take it a step further. It almost sounds like from my reading of it is that how to be a great team member. It sounds like they, they um, value you all as great team members and you all modeling for that really kind of showed them. So, uh, I mean, I think this is a perfect lead into the next question because one, this was all founded on the idea of how to expand your clinical presence, right? So what advice or what did you learn going through this process that you would give to other either pharmacists or pharmacy departments looking to expand their clinical presence in their emergency department? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So for us, the way we initially started expanding our services was doing the direct side patient care, but also finding opportunities to provide more formal didactic uh, education. Um, so we first started off with getting ourselves involved in their weekly seminars where we provided various topics and ensuring that we were identifying uh, topics that we needed to be improved upon. For example, we thought there was ways to optimize how we were managing folks with diabetic ketoacidosis. So we presented the literature to them. Um, but we took it up a step and we also provided data that we collected from our institution. So we made it more relevant to them so that it was more tangible so we can actually identify what things other institutions are doing, but specifically what are we doing here and how can we be better? Um, so that was the first step we took. So I encourage folks that are in the earlier processes to identify areas of improvement within their institution, tie it into best practices, and then hopefully allow that to foster a relationship where then you can slowly start inching your way into doing additional tasks, uh, such as we did here with the pharmacy elective. I think that's really great advice, too, because when you're doing research in the department, right, that that requires you to interact with a lot of people that you might not otherwise, right? You're going to have to present that data to committees. You're going to have to gain approval from certain people to do certain things. So um, I think that's that's great advice. Really, really good thing. Hope everyone's listening there. Um, my, my final question is looking into the future, what are your, what are your next step plans, whether it's for this research or just in general kind of collaborating from a multidisciplinary perspective? Yeah. So for us, next steps wise with this research in particular is we are currently preparing a manuscript uh, that we plan on submitting in the next few months. Um, and the intention there is to further disseminate this information to share with the rest of the pharmacy community that, you know, this is possible. You can certainly create a pharmacy elective. There is a need for it and it can be done. Taking a look at the results that we did get, it seems that we need to create more of a presence with the first year residents. So right now we're looking for additional opportunities to, our, to interact with these folks. Um, so what we're doing right now is we're preparing an orientation um, type of lecture for the incoming class for the interns where they're going to get to meet us as well as be able to understand what services we can provide for them just so we can start that bonding and those interactions so that when they actually are in the ED, despite us not being in the same zones providing care, they know that they can contact us for support. 
Well, I, I know I'm not the only one speaking for this, that clearly you're doing a great job and just congratulations to you. And um, the other pharmacist on the paper was Mallory Cruz. So we'll shout her out. But, you know, clearly you two are doing a great job with your department. What what an awesome research idea. Um, where can the listeners reach out to you with questions or comments? Are you on Twitter? What, what would your email be? What's the best way for them to find you? Yeah, for myself, the best way is going to be email. Uh, so my personal email address is going to be my name. It's fibarra1010 at gmail.com. Awesome. Thanks again, Francisco, for this awesome research and for uh, taking time to uh, join me today. Uh, thank you, Nick, and the listeners. And with me now is Jackie Scalgioni. Uh, she's currently the emergency medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey, and so lucky to be joined by Jackie to discuss her SAEM research, the impact of emergency medicine pharmacists on anticoagulation reversal. Uh, so Jackie, take it away. Thanks, and thanks so much for having me. Um, so I'll just give like a brief overview of what I did for my project to give you an idea and like kind of what where it came from. So there's a lot of ED pharmacist literature like starting to come out now um, about like improving door to balloon time and improving like time to antibiotics with sepsis and things of that nature. But there isn't a lot of literature on pharmacist impact on anticoagulation reversal, which is kind of crazy because it's such a high cost thing. And you know, it's like a sexy topic for like the pharmacy community. Um, so we wanted to look at what happened at our institution because we know that there is literature saying that like when these patients come in, the time to reversal is super important. And if you don't reverse in a timely manner and like stop their anticoagulation, it leads to worse outcomes associated with the other care. Um, so what we did was we developed this guideline that we implemented in January of 2022 that gave recommendations for the reversal of warfarin and factor 10A inhibitors. And it basically, what it was was for warfarin reversal, we um, recommend K-Centra with the fixed dose. We do a higher fixed dose for intracranial hemorrhage and a little bit lower for major bleeds. And then we have the option to redose if the INR isn't at goal after 30 minutes. And then for our factor 10A inhibitors, we actually gave the providers an option that they can either choose to reverse with four factor PCC K-Centra with the weight-based dose. We recommended the 50 units per kilo for intracranial hemorrhages, and then 25 for other major bleeds, or they had the option to choose andexin and alpha to reverse it because we did have that um, on formulary as an option. And what we wanted to look at was to see if, one, if the, having an ED pharmacist improved our compliance with the guidelines, so if the indication was appropriate and the dose. Um, and then we also looked at if having an ED pharmacist improved the time to actual reversal. Um, so we had 36 patients that were reversed in the year of 2022. Um, and what we found was 30 patients actually received four factor PCC with 21 of them for the indication of 10A reversal. So like a lot of our providers got kind of on board with using K-Centra for the 10A reversal. And we found overall, there was an 86% compliance rate with the guidelines overall. So that's with a pharmacist or without a pharmacist, which is actually really impressive. Um, but when you looked at, with, when you had a pharmacist present, we were 100% compliant with the guidelines. 
as opposed to when there was no pharmacist, they were 73% compliant with the guideline, which we did find a statistical significance. So when you have a pharmacist involved, we were better at choosing the right indication and dosing um, for that. And then for time to reversal, our overall median time to reversal was 41 minutes, which is again kind of a, a long time when somebody is bleeding into a vital organ. Um, but when an, a pharmacist was present, it reduced the median time to reversal by 13.5 minutes. Overall, we didn't find a statistical significance with that. However, maybe it could be considered clinically significant. Um, but then when we looked at four-factor PCC alone, we found that the pharma having a pharmacist did significantly reduce the time to reversal, where it was 41 minutes with no pharmacist compared to 25 um, without a pharmacist. I mean, when you had a pharmacist. Um, and then I think that we didn't find a statistical significance with Andexanet because we only had one patient with no pharmacist present that actually received it. Um, so overall, that was kind of like the what our main takeaway was it kind of showing like maybe having a pharmacist improves your compliance with the guideline and indication and dosing. And I feel like having a pharmacist definitely improves your time to reversal. We definitely want to look at more of that and, and kind of this gives us a nice stepping stone for what we can improve on and how we can improve the process for a time, time to overall reversal. Well, first off, round of applause, 25 minutes for the median yeah. time to giving PCC. That's amazing when a pharmacist is present. So that is got to give a shout out right there first and foremost. But describe your, your current process for like uh, reversal reconstitution. Like what is it like when, when the emergency medicine pharmacist is there and how does the process differ when there isn't someone present? So this is so this is another reason we wanted to look at it because we know there's a big difference at our institution and we wanted to show that so we could improve what it's like when we're not there. Um, but when an ED pharmacist is present, we're there verifying the order. We kind of have an idea of everything that's going on. We're recommending, obviously, the medication. And then we go, we don't have a tube system or a stat tech. So when an order is placed, we verify it there. We go down to pharmacy. We either have the IV room make Andexanet or for um, K-Centra, we get the boxes and bring it upstairs and reconstitute it at bedside. If a pharmacist isn't present, that adds a lot of time because the pharmacists downstairs are still verifying the order. So they are not seeing the patient. They don't have the full picture of what's going on. So that could take time to clarify the order. And also, we don't have these staff pharmacy techs, so we rely on the unit to come down and pick up the medication, which could also add time. Um, and the pharmacist, when we don't have an ED pharmacist there, they're mixing both the K-Centra and the Andexanet in the IV room in the pharmacy, which definitely adds time, too. And when you have a, a busy emergency department, right? No one's really there to answer the phone and talk about why you're reversing it or to get the weight if like if you need it. Right. Or um, to talk to the doc if they're not following in or things. Right. The logistics of that is just so, so complicated. It actually makes the time to time to reversal without one almost impressive as well as you kind of went through went through all those steps. The. The, the old night shift pharmacist in me kind of shuddered a little bit hearing no stat tech, no tube system. I'm just imagining uh, what, life is, what life is like. Um, 
But you you mentioned that the um, the whole this whole project was started about creating like institutional guidelines and and uh, the creation of like a formulary. So what challenges does does having both index and alpha and PCCs like on your formulary, but also more specifically like your institutional guidelines? Like how do you feel like that's affected you all at the bedside when you know these decisions are kind of being made? So I think that's a great point. We um, when I first started, we only had SIBA on formulary. So we brought on K-Centra at the time and Dexanet like just came out and it was, we brought them both onto formulary. This was like one of my first couple months of starting there. Um, and so we followed the guidelines and the literature by only recommending Andexa initially and then um, for factor 10A. And then like, as you know, all this literature is coming out, which isn't much to say that one's better than the other. And people have different practices that they would prefer the K-Centra in this situation or some prefer the Andexanet. So having both of them, the thought was maybe we would move away from Andexanet without like ripping the Band-Aid off right away. Um, so having the two definitely adds a layer of education for everybody involved. So like the physicians, it's different K-Centra dosing. It's weight-based compared to our fixed dose for the 10A inhibitors. Um, and the, it's, it's done based on indication, whereas Andexanet is done, as you know, based on the dose and the time of the last um, drug. So I think it's a different piece to kind of know about both of them for that indication. And it definitely, we needed to give so much education up front when we did that switch or, or allowed for the options just so that they were able to understand. So I definitely see that layer being a challenge and obstacle with having both available. I envision that like if you if you had one, it'd probably lead to you more proactively going and grabbing some of those factors, right? But if you don't know maybe the size of the bleed will impact which they choose and things, well, you're not going to spend, you know, eight minutes going to get all that stuff if they might not even choose it anyways. So I could understand how that might kind of keep you at the starting point a little longer than you might have otherwise. Right. So, I mean, these are like great results. It's 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 really cool seeing um, these time to administration studies published and the effect that pharmacists can do. So what's your kind of hope to, to capitalize or build on the momentum from this research, whether it's, you know, like you said, at your institution or kind of further, like in a research kind of national perspective? So from, uh, we definitely want to write this up and we're going to, we want to try and get a little bit more data. So we do have data from the earlier years of mainly we, since we just gave the option this year or in 2022 of using either for factor 10A, we can still look at having an ED pharmacist improve the time to reversal. So we definitely want to grab more of those numbers to kind of make from 2018 to now is going to give us a lot more administrations that we can see and, and show more of an impact. Um, so we'll definitely be looking to publish that and that hopefully forwards like the ED pharmacy presence and, and encourages like our importance in this process and in the ED and in the institution. Um, but at our institution, we are leaning towards, again, removing Andexanet from formulary. And this kind of gives us a little bit of um, data, like institutional data to say, that it is taking so much longer to administer it. We're not using it that much. We also have data on like wasted doses, which breaks my pharmacist's soul. <laughs> I know. Um, 
So like having that, and then also pointing out that maybe we do need a stat tech, that having that could improve it. Like every step in the process, maybe better educating the pharmacists and the physicians who use the guidelines to say like, this is where we kind of fell off um, and this is where we can see improvement and then do like a before and after um, from that. So this was kind of just the groundwork to see where, how we could improve at our institution, but also to show like, like at any institution, we can improve this process. And this is kind of our role in the whole situation. Well, clearly a, a big and important role. Um, what an awesome study. The, the impact of emergency medicine pharmacists on anticoagulation reversal. Um, Jackie, thanks for uh, coming and joining me and also presenting this, this research at SAEM. Talk about um, a great audience to hear some of this. So a great job all around. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I'm happy you're interested. Stay tuned. There'll probably be more from me. <laughs> Let's go. And I'm here with Alicia Matson, and she's an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist with the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at AM underscore EM underscore PharmD. That's creative. I like that. Um, excited to hear all about her study, the incidence of post-intubation hypotension after rapid sequence intubation in full versus reduced dose induction agent. So Alicia, the floor is yours. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Um, so the aim of this study was really to determine the incidence of post-intubation hypotension in patients with an elevated shock index who received either a full dose um, compared to a reduced dose in the induction agent for rapid sequence intubation in the emergency department. So what we did is a retrospective cohort study, um, and we looked at patients within multiple sites within our one health system. So it was at our large tertiary care center and then a couple of our community hospitals as well. Um, these patients were intubated in the emergency department between July of 2018 um, through December of 2020. Uh, and to be included, they had to be intubated in the emergency department, uh, greater than or equal to 18 years of age, and receive Atomidate, Ketamine, or Propofol as their induction agent. And then we also um, included patients just with uh, an elevated pre-intubation shock index um, of, and the cutoff that we used was greater than or equal to 0 0.8. So when we talk about the study, I think it's important to have a little bit of understanding about the definitions that we used. So um, we uh, determined intubation time as the time that the induction agent was administered. Because there's nothing, uh, looking back retrospectively, there's nothing that actually like documents the actual time that the patient was intubated. Um, so we sort of used, used the surrogate um, that the time that the induction agent was um, given in the MAR. Uh, we defined pre-intubation time as those 30 minutes prior to intubation time. And then post-intubation was the 30 minutes after. So because we were comparing uh, reduced versus a standard dose induction agent or a full dose induction agent, we had to make some cutoffs for what we um, determined standard versus reduced dose. Um, there's nothing great in the literature that sort of has this standardized yet. Um, so uh, given sort of like expert opinion and, and what we thought, we utilized um, for Atomidate uh, 0.2 megs per kg. So anything less than or equal to that was considered... Um, reduced dose and anything greater was full dose. And then ketamine and propofol, we utilized 1.25 milligrams per kilo. So anything less than or equal to that was reduced dose and higher than that was 
um, full dose. We defined hypotension as a systolic blood pressure of less than 100. Um, and in patients who were hypotensive before intubation or didn't have a systolic greater than 100, we uh, defined it as a drop in their systolic by 20%. So if we look at our demographics, we had a total of 459 patients um, that were included. When we break them up between the different induction agents, uh, a majority of our patients received Atomidate. So 78% of them received Atomidate as their induction agent, um, and 19% of them received ketamine. With a very small proportion, we had 14 patients, or 3% of our, our cohort received propofol. Um, when looking at some other demographics of the group, um, so it was decently even between the use of succinylcholine and ketamine. Um, the Atomidate group, 56% of the patients received succinylcholine compared to um, the ketamine group, there was 48%, and all the others received rocuronium. Uh, when we look at pre-intubation vital signs between the groups, um, uh, if you look specifically at their pre-intubation shock index, so again, these were all patients who had a shock index of, of greater than or equal to uh, 0 0.8. The mean pre-intubation shock index was 1.12 in the automidate group uh, and 1.22 in the ketamine group. And that gave us a p-value of 0 0.037. Um, and then uh, I think it's also interesting to look at how often this reduced dose uh, induction agent strategy was utilized between the two groups. Um, and in the automidate group, um, just 14% of the time, they utilized reduced dose. Um, compared to in the ketamine group, 39% of the patients had a reduced dose strategy um, utilized. So if we think about what our, our primary outcome, which was post-intubation hypotension, um, when we look at all six groups, so automidate, uh, ketamine, propofol, and then full versus reduced dose, the highest incidence of post-intubation hypotension was in the full-dose ketamine group. So we had a rate of 43.4% of post-intubation post hypotension in that group. Um, those that received reduced-dose ketamine only had a rate of 19.4%. Um, of post-intubation hypotension. And that was the only one that showed statistical significance. So there was no difference um, when comparing atomidate full versus reduced or propofol full versus reduced. Um, they all had similar rates. The difference was really between the ketamine um, groups. So I like a, a lot of the research in, in the RSI world has been looking at the neuromuscular blockade. I like that we're looking at the induction agents. Um, so I think this is a really, a really cool study, something anecdotally um, we probably see. Now, going into this study, did you have any, obviously not biases, but in your mind, did you think or suspect that one agent or um, a specific dosing regimen would give you higher rates of hypotension? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, honestly, not specifically. Um, I think a lot of my motivation in doing this study was um, I thought that there probably wasn't that much difference um, between it, uh, it, specifically like a causation from the induction agent. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, it, it's a strategy that um, at least at our place I've seen utilized a lot more given a lot of um, the stuff that's in sort of a lot of the blogs and stuff within the EM world recently. Um, and 
uh, I just didn't see a lot of uh, actual literature to support the use of these sort of reduced dose strategies. So a lot of uh, my motivation in doing this was trying to, I mean, in an ideal world, prove that they didn't matter. But you can see that we, you know, within our cohort, we did find a difference. So you have to go with the data that you found. But. Uh, well, we, myself and the listeners, uh, also love that you um, went Nancy Drew on us and went getting uh, detective work, finding the research and letting us in on it. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. Now, looking, you broke down the percent kind of used of each agent. And um, based on what you're telling me, Atomidate appears to be the induction agent of choice, right, at the sites that were included in this research. So I guess knowing that with hearing the results of the full dose ketamine kind of having that statistical significance, how do you think, does this, does that affect your interpretation of these like at all? Yeah, I think a little bit. Uh, And, and, uh, from practice, I know that automate is really our induction agent of choice. Um, and so we knew that probably, especially if, like thinking of the time period in which this study was done, um, ketamine was sort of the, you know, the hot drug and everyone thought that it would be probably better for post-intubation hypotension. So we knew that there was probably going to be some selection bias with this. Um, and, you know, and in a way we tried to control for it, like by only including patients with an elevated shock index. But you can see that there is some differences even in these groups. You know, our, our ketamine group was thicker. They had a statistically significantly higher shock index. They had um, a lower systolic blood pressure pre-intubation. Um, and so uh, <clears throat> we probably have some selection bias when, when we're comparing these groups. And so these patients that got ketamine maybe were thicker, maybe were, uh, you know, probably had a higher risk of um, having post-intubation hypotension compared to the automated group. Well, I like that you that you brought it up because, I mean, it, it's great research, but it's retrospective. So we know that there were going to yeah. be some limitations, right? But I think that there's still good information and great data that came out. Um, but your, your kind of thoughts or, um, I guess, things to keep in mind with that is exactly kind of what I was thinking. So um, I appreciate you kind of breaking that down. Um, the last thing that stood out to me, right, you mentioned um, that – all of the patients basically had an elevated pre-intubation shock index. But this was like, a, it appears based on that, that this is like an all-inclusive cohort of like the critically ill patients. So do you think, um, like, did your research show that the disease state or disease process influences this, i.e. are trauma patients more or less susceptible than are patients who are in, you know, septic shock or early sepsis? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, we, um, I, I didn't talk about it uh, when I was going through the study. We did collect with this uh, c- group of patients, you know, um, whether their indication for intubation, and there wasn't a large difference. We actually had like a higher um, rate of trauma patients in our ketamine uh, cohort. Um, uh, but but you're right, you know, this is an all-inclusive patient population. It was, you know, they were getting intubated for multiple different reasons. Um, and, and so that does affect it, but we didn't specifically like tease out um, whether there was a higher rate based off of their indication. And, and sometimes it's nice to have the look from, from 10,000 feet up, right. To get a feel for what it looks like to everybody and then kind of drill down. Yeah. Um, so uh, really awesome research. Um, Alicia, I appreciate you uh, taking time to join me um, and uh, help the listeners learn a little bit more about this uh, awesome study and uh, answer a few questions. So uh, we certainly appreciate you. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. 
Joining me here now is Amelia Slain, and Amelia is the PGY2 emergency medicine resident at MUSC, and she completed a traditional PGY1 along with a PGY2 psychiatric residency, both at MUSC. Uh, Find her on Twitter at Slain Amelia, and her SAEM research project was entitled The Utility of Phenobarbital as an Adjunct to Benzodiazepines in the Setting of Alcohol Withdrawal. What a, what a hot topic. So, Amelia, go ahead and take it away. Hi there. Yes, thanks so much for the great introduction. Um, so, as Nick mentioned, my project was looking at phenobarbital as an adjunct to benzos in the setting of alcohol withdrawal. As we know, this is a hot topic, and phenobarbital has been studied and utilized for several decades in this setting. Um, and there have been studies that have shown that phenobarbital decreases ICU admissions, decreases hospital length of stay, has comparable adverse event profile to benzos, and is effective in patients that maybe aren't responding to benzodiazepines. So our aim of this study was to really evaluate the use here at our institution to see all of those outcomes to see if they were consistently seen, but also to really evaluate if phenobarbital use could minimize benzodiazepine requirements, as this is kind of a gap in the literature, and we weren't really sure what we would find. We conducted a retrospective cohort study at our academic medical center and included patients that received a dose of phenobarbital within the emergency department and had CWA ordered for alcohol withdrawal syndrome receiving a benzodiazepine in the ED emergency department. So we had two groups, one benzodiazepine monotherapy group, and then one combination group that received both benzodiazepines and at least one dose of that phenobarb. We excluded patients that were less than 18 years of age, and it also excluded patients that received propofol or dexmedetomidine prior to the administration of phenobarb. As mentioned, our primary endpoint was to compare benzodiazepine requirements presented in lorazepam equivalents. And then secondarily, we also looked at benzodiazepine infusion requirements, dexmedetomidine requirements, and propofol requirements. The baseline demographics for our study, our groups were pretty equally balanced. Our average age was about 47 years old in both groups. We had primarily male patients at about 70% in each group and primarily white patients with about 70 to 80%, depending on the group, represented by white patients. The benzodiazepine group consisted of 481 patients, and the combination group had 92 patients. And the hospital length of stay actually was pretty much significantly shorter in the phenobarb group, which was interesting, um, 2.9 versus 3.6 days, so a pretty, pretty interesting difference there. We also assessed the severity of alcohol withdrawal between our patients by looking at their maximum CWA score on average. And the patients in the phenobarb group did have a more severe alcohol withdrawal with a higher maximum CWA score. Additionally, interestingly enough, with baseline demographics, more patients in the phenobarb group were directly discharged from the emergency department. Getting into our results, so primarily, our again, our outcome was to compare benzodiazepine requirements for the patients that received phenobarb versus those that did not. We did not see a statistically or clinically significant difference in benzodiazepine requirements. However, for our secondary outcomes, we looked at, again, benzodiazepine infusions, dexmedetomidine infusions, and propofol infusions. And while none of them were statistically significantly different, there was a trend towards fewer requirements of all three agents for the patients that received phenobarbital. Some notable limitations of our study was that the most common by far, dosing strategy for phenobarbital was just a once dose of 260 milligrams for all patients. 
And again, as mentioned, this might be a representation of underdosing. Um, our patient population and our providers are not as comfortable with phenobarbital dosing necessarily. And so we may not be reaching that 10 mg per kg that's really been studied as a cumulative dose and therefore might not be seeing the maximum benefit of the phenobarbital. Um, also, as noted, this is a retrospective design. So there obviously could be some inherent bias that could be present. And as mentioned, the severity of alcohol withdrawal based on our CWA scores is not significantly equivalent kind of between groups. So it may have led to some differences as well. So to conclude, our study um, did not show a difference in benzodiazepine requirements when phenobarbital was administered. However, we still found that phenobarbital is likely an effective adjunctive treatment option that can lead to potentially reduced length of hospital stay, um, an increased rate of discharge directly from the emergency department, and a reduced need for some of those adjunctive medications such as propofol, dexmedetomidine, or even benzodiazepine infusion. Well, Amelia, what a before I get into the questions, what a great um, study design and idea. Um, definitely uh, something that is um, really getting research and trying to figure out its role in, in therapy. Now, you mentioned that um, some of the providers aren't as comfortable with the larger kind of some of the evidence-based doses. So um, how how did the doses kind of get chosen? Is it provider preference or or kind of walk us through how, how that selection kind of happens? Yeah, so at MUSC, we have, which I'm sure is similar to other institutions, we have an IV push policy that's in place that kind of limits how much we can give somebody via an IV push in the emergency department. Ours specifically states that phenobarbital cannot be administered faster than 60 milligrams per minute. So that 260 milligram dose is generally the highest push dose that we'll see because that can be given, you know, a little bit under five minutes in a push setting. Um, so we do have a protocol that was published kind of in our specific emergency department that recommends a dose of 260 milligrams followed by 30 minutes later a dose of 130 milligrams. The piece that I think often gets missed is it does recommend continuing to dose these patients with 130 milligrams up to a cumulative dose of 10 mg per keg until the CWA score is less than 8. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, we're just not seeing those, you know, repetitive doses being given. And obviously, we're still seeing the benzodiazepines given. So these patients aren't necessarily at a CWA less than eight when the phenobarbital is stopped. I think this is really due to just the comfortability of our providers in giving those subsequent doses of phenobarb. And the most common dosing strategy at our institution is that 260. Oftentimes, they then get no phenobarb after that. However, sometimes they'll get that 130 milligram dose. But even with a patient that's 70 kilos, that would be just at five mg per keg. And that's, you know, less than that 10 mg per keg that we're seeing in the literature. So would you say when you when you looked at um, the repeat doses, would you say if they got repeat doses, it was typically just kind of that the once like a 130 dose? Was that is that typically kind of what you found when you were digging through? Absolutely. Yeah. I looked through all the patients that received phenobarbital and the maximum amount of phenobarb that one or two of our total phenobarb patients got was two doses of 260 and then one dose of 130. But by and large, most patients did not receive over just that one dose of 260. And if they did, it was just a 130 subsequent dose. You know, I find that unless you um, have emergency medicine physicians who are also toxicologists or have a large interest in it, that I feel like most people aren't as comfortable with those, that 10 mg per kg ideal body weight dose. 
Absolutely. We had a toxicologist that worked with us for a bit. Um, unfortunately, none of the doses that he gave were in my study. However, I do think since he's been practicing at MUSC and since he was here, a lot of the providers became more comfortable with some of that higher dosing. You know, the, the, because I think it is important to note the, that's, that's the one probably big limitation. If you do just the 10 mg per kg upfront is, you know, you have to, you have to have it compounded, right? So they have to go to the narc vault, they go back, they make it, they have to handle it. It's a whole process. And meanwhile, this person's like raging in the ED, right? That's when you're trying to give it. And so I typically like the idea of those repeat doses to, to stack up to that, but it's, it's making sure you get to that, I think is the, is the ultimate thing. So I think that's a really um, important point there. Now, one of the things that you that I kind of took note of is that you mentioned that more patients that got phenobarb were actually directly discharged from the ED. So um, in that scenario, right, I kind of think of them as a they didn't need admission. So I kind of put them on the more mild end of that withdrawal spectrum. So when you were kind of looking at the kind of the characterization, right, mild kind of discharged for a moderate being admitted and severe, right, they need the ICU propofol, Presidex, et cetera, where did you kind of see phenobarb typically being used in your in, in these patients in, in the study on that kind of spectrum? Yeah, so I actually glanced back at our protocol within the emergency department, and there are recommendations for phenobarbital for our severe CWA, you know, alcohol withdrawal patients that are receiving several doses of benzos and still not responding. And then also on the other end of the spectrum for patients that have less than eight of a CWA and they feel can be discharged directly from the ED, they'll give them that 260 and then 130 dose and then send them out as long as they're stable due to the pharmacokinetics and properties of the drug. And so I think that this project, it's hard to really say based on this data where phenobarbital is best. However, I do think that some of these mild patients can really benefit from phenobarb because they're getting discharged directly from the ED. And maybe even more of the um, patients that were in that phenobarb group that got discharged, if they hadn't received phenobarb, they may have needed to come in. So I think kind of across the whole spectrum, phenobarbital can be a helpful agent. Yeah, I love that. Um, My last, okay, my last question, you did a great job explaining the study, but in the introduction, you know, I noticed, right, you're on a unique career path. And so I guess, and when I say that, right, you're in your your uh, third year of postgraduate training. So um, how did you get to this point, right? How did you decide to do that? And then for any of the, of the learners or listeners who maybe, who have thought about this, right, and have done it, what's maybe like a, a tip or a piece of advice that you've learned through kind of going through this process? Yeah, great question. So um, as mentioned, I've done three years of residency here at MUSC. Very thankful for all of my experiences. And, you know, I, I would not do anything differently if I could go back. Um, my, my trajectory was interesting. So coming into MUSC as a PGY1, I had a lot of different areas of interest, including psychiatry and emergency medicine. And psychiatry was something that I've always had a really strong passion for. So I early committed for the psychiatry PGY2 pretty early in my PGY one year. And then I also, after that, and after early committing, experienced my rotation in the emergency department. 
And specifically at MUSC and at a lot of emergency departments, there's a very large psychiatric population that is in the emergency department. So I found that through my time in psychiatry, but also through my time in emergency medicine, as an emergency medicine pharmacist, I'm really able to spend a lot of my time helping these patients that have psychiatric concerns. And so the emergency medicine track really allowed me to kind of combine some of all of my interest areas because I'm able to do the psych stuff along with all of the sort of emergent stuff that I'm also interested. I love neurological emergencies and substance use disorders and all of those things as well. So I feel like emergency medicine really gave me the opportunity to practice in all of my areas. Um, The piece of advice I would give to the learners is, you know, really try to advocate for yourself and think about what it is that you truly want in your career goals. I think that it would have been very easy for me and I would have been totally satisfied had I stayed with psych and gotten a psychiatric pharmacy job. But I knew in my heart of hearts that I really wanted to be able to do both psych and emergency medicine. And so I really shot for the stars and went for it. And I'm really thankful that I did. And it was definitely hard, but I think trying to figure out what you're really interested in and what your passions are is important to make sure that you're truly satisfied in your career. Well, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And that's certainly not the case. So that's really awesome. Um, Thanks for sharing. And uh, thanks for coming on, highlighting this awesome research. Um, We appreciate you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Jordan Jenred is here with us now, and Jordan is the current PGY2 emergency medicine pharmacy resident at the University of Colorado, and she's coming up on the end of her training and proud to announce she's staying on in Denver post-residency as an emergency medicine pharmacist at the University Hospital. Amazing, amazing. Um, Twitter handle, if you want to reach out to her, at J Genret RX. And her SAEM research project is entitled Single Dose Aminoglycosides for Complicated Urinary Tract Infections in the Emergency Department. So Jordan, the floor is yours. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. Um, And thank you for that. Congratulations. I'm excited to be staying in Denver. But yes, today we are going to be talking about uh, single dose aminoglycosides for complicated urinary tract infections in the ED. We know that antimicrobial resistance is a growing problem and it continues to be a growing problem in complicated urinary tract infections. There have been some small case series that have been that have demonstrated efficacy and safety at single-dose aminoglycosides, but this has mainly been looking at uncomplicated cystitis, and the data is very limited for complicated cystitis patients. Single-dose aminoglycosides are a very convenient alternative for those with or at risk for resistant pathogens, especially when oral options are unavailable due to either resistance, allergy, or intolerance of medications. And a single-dose aminoglycoside could potentially avoid a hospital admission when IV antibiotics are really the only other alternative therapy. And we all know that avoiding hospital admission is something that we are in favor of these days with a lot of our hospitals at capacity. So our study specifically wanted to evaluate the safety and the effectiveness of a single-dose aminoglycoside in the treatment of specifically complicated urinary tract infections in our emergency department. So we wanted to look at the clinical or microbiologic failure of treatment at 14 days after patients were enrolled, and they were enrolled at the time that they received that single-dose aminoglycoside. So that was our primary outcome, was looking at any sort of failure at 14 days after enrollment. This included failure to resolve symptoms that were present at the time of enrollment. This included new development of urinary symptoms. This included death, and then this also included future urine culture growth of more than 1,000 colony-forming units per ml. 
So if they had a culture within the next 14 days after they were enrolled, that suggested still um, a urine, urinary tract infection. Our secondary outcomes did look at clinical or microbiologic failure at seven days after enrollment, so a little bit tighter of a time window. We did do this as a single center prospective observational study, and it was done mainly here at our university hospital, but some patients were enrolled at some of our satellite hospitals as well around the Colorado Front Range area. We enrolled patients between July of 2022 through March of 2023, uh, so roughly a nine-month time window there, and we did include patients that had a diagnosis of acute cystitis, and they had to have at least one complicating factor, but they could have had multiple. We did exclude patients that had any sort of allergy to any immunoglycoside in, the, in their history. We excluded patients that had empiric treatment for broader infectious sources because they'd be, be receiving antibiotics for other indications. And we also excluded patients that had subsequent treatment with an alternative antibiotic, either on admission or within 48 hours of discharge, because it wouldn't be possible to tell really the, the effectiveness of that single-dose immunoglycoside for those patients. We ended up evaluating 13 patients total. Uh, a lot of patients that we um, evaluated for enrollment ended up being excluded because we know elderly patients can be encephalopathic or altered with many active UTIs. And so consent was challenging and not possible for some of those patients. So only 13 patients in our study. The main complicating factors that we saw were um, urinary catheters, recent urologic procedure, or if they had greater than or equal to two antibiotic allergies, and 31% of patients had one of those complicating factors. It is worth noting that 85% of patients in our study did have a lack of oral options uh, based on culture history in the last 12 months. And so these patients were patients that were more likely to need to be admitted to the hospital for an IV treatment course of antibiotics if we didn't use a single-dose aminoglycoside. No patients ended up being admitted, uh, which is a, a plus because their alternative oftentimes is to be admitted. And our hospital definitely prefers gentamicin and amikacin as our aminoglycosides, and so every patient received one of those except for one of the 13 patients did receive tobramycin. For our results, 10 patients did have clinical and microbiologic cure at 14 days, and three patients were deemed to have failed treatment. Um, of the three patients who failed treatment, all three of them continued to have persistent symptoms that they initially presented with to the emergency department, and two of those patients developed new symptoms. They were all clinical failures, so they all reported um, either continuing or new symptoms. So they, it wasn't a, a culture failure. That being said, there were no adverse events, so no nephrotoxicity, no otologic events, no allergic reactions, anything like that, that were reported by these patients. So the safety profile of single-dose aminoglycosides was very promising from our study. For limitations, this study definitely does have its limitations that are worth talking about. Um, we didn't have a comparator group. This was purely observational in nature, and we just had our one cohort of the patients who received single-dose aminoglycosides. And this patient population is a population with a very high likelihood of treatment failure, which didn't really help our chances with the primary outcome. And so I'm not surprised that three patients did fail the primary outcome. That being said, we did ultimately conclude that single-dose aminoglycosides do appear to be effective and safe uh, as a treatment option for complicated urinary tract infections in an emergency department cohort uh, that could potentially avoid hospital admission. Uh, number one, what an awesome, awesome study um, doing prospective uh, research as part of a residency requirement is is awesome. So kudos. That's a, a testament to 
to the hard work that um, you and, and your colleagues at, at UC Health did. So uh, big kudos there. Um, Thank you. I wanted to mention, you you talked about how um, the patients had a high likelihood of treatment failure. And if you got a chance to look at the poster, you'd, you'd kind of see these aren't your normal patients who are getting a dose and possibly leaving. So what, when you look at your patient population, how were they different? What increased that risk of microbiologic, microbiologic failure um, compared to the classic cohort that we see looking for the, the kind of one and done um, treatment for a UTI? I think that's an awesome question, Nick. Um, so these patients are definitely patients that have um, often or recurrent urinary tract infections or who have already failed multiple regimens. So this is part of our poster, but um, as our cohort, we did collect information on how many treat- how many patients had failed at least one treatment prior to receiving their single-dose aminoglycoside, and many of them did fail before receiving the aminoglycoside. And so these patients oftentimes have indwelling hardware like stents that really ends up being more of a source control problem. And so these patients are a little bit predisposed to treatment failure, unfortunately. And when we looked at um, the complicating factors that the patients who failed treatment had, the patients who failed treatment, one of them had a kidney stone, one of them had a urinary catheter, one of them had indwelling hardware like a stent. And so oftentimes these are areas that are colonized or it's a patient population where it's a little bit more challenging to get source control. So it's not totally unexpected that they would fail, uh, but it's worth trying to potentially avoid a hospital admission. Well, and what a um, a unique, um, you know, you're you're taking a study design that's kind of been done, and you took a unique perspective to it. So uh, that was cool. How did so? You mentioned the majority of patients got amicase and agentamycin, and that's where um, this is why research can be so hard, right? So as you're doing all this CLSI graciously, right, modified the breakpoints of all these antibiotics that you're using, right, specifically aminoglycosides. So did that change in the breakpoint? And basically, for those who are unaware, the CLSI kind of recommended that um, gentamicin and amicacin should be used no more, and we should be using tobramycin kind of exclusively for our UTI treatment. So Jordan, how did that kind of play into your research, interpreting the data, all of that? Yeah, that is a very fair question, and it's definitely a limitation of this study. And you could definitely say this is a huge wrench in our plan. The timing almost couldn't have been worse that these breakpoints were updated in March. And so we actually stopped our data collection a little bit early in March uh, when those breakpoint updates were released because we knew we had to kind of touch base and sort of figure out what we were going to do with this. So you're correct in that gentamicin is no longer considered pseudomonas covering. Um, and I would say our hospital didn't really reliably use gentamicin for pseudomonas coverage at baseline. And so um, to me, the data with gentamicin still feels effective or accurate, if you will. Um, these aminoglycoside breakpoints were a result of data from previous years that had showed microbiologic resistance. And so raising those breakpoints was to really ensure that organisms are susceptible if we are going to use aminoglycosides. It's hard to say if patients who failed our primary outcome maybe failed because previous cultures, like the cultures that we had in their chart, showed that the organisms were sensitive to aminoglycosides with our old breakpoints. But maybe if we used our new breakpoints that are a little bit more um, like challenging to meet, maybe they would be resistant and we just like didn't know it and they got an aminoglycoside that wouldn't have been effective and we would have known that data. 
That being said, with labs updating their breakpoints, I still do feel comfortable using single-dose aminoglycosides um, as long as your lab has updated their breakpoints. If your lab has not updated your breakpoints yet, then I would be more wary because cultures may show that your organism is sensitive to an aminoglycoside when really they aren't. And so it's really just about um, what your lab has done at your hospital or your practice site with their breakpoint reporting. We are very lucky that aminoglycoside concentrations are high in the urine, and that does give us a better chance of treatment success overall if we, compared to if we were using aminoglycosides for like a different um, source of infection. So Jordan, I wanted to end with, right, a, a prospective study for a residency research project um, is uh, not only a high achievement, but just something that isn't done as much. So for, for the listeners, for some of the other students or learners who are listening, what would you say is one of the biggest things you learned with research as it regards to kind of a prospective study? Yeah, Nick, I think that's a great question. And it's something that I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to do um, and to learn about as a PGY2 resident. I think I'm honestly going to say that the biggest thing I learned about doing prospective research in an emergency department is really education of your staff. So as a resident, you know, I'm in the hospital a lot. I'm in the emergency department a lot, but I can't be there all the time. And so I did rely on my um, sort of counterparts in the emergency department, the ED staff and also the ED physicians to really identify patients that could potentially be enrolled in this study. And that required a lot of education of our pharmacy department that required a lot of education of our physician team to make sure they were okay with using this new sort of treatment regimen in a patient population that we really didn't have a lot of data on yet. Um, but doing that education really helped us identify as many patients as we possibly could. And it helped me screen as many patients as I could without being in the emergency department 24-7, I would say. I love that you highlighted one of the behind the scenes things because with research, right, it's almost like a duck. You look on the surface and everything's calm, but underneath the surface, right, they're kicking like crazy. So it's, you know, yeah. all the behind the scenes stuff is what makes a research project actually successful. So um, great job. And then you mentioned, right, we're recording this. You're staying in Denver. This is literally the morning after the Denver Nuggets won the NBA finals. So are you like, were you part of the people like climbing up on lampposts and like partying with Aaron Gordon in the middle of the street or what was your what was your night like <laughs> I definitely uh, spent some time walking around downtown and taking part in some of the cheering and the celebrations so I think it's pretty safe to say that Denver is very excited um, and was very invested in the Nuggets winning the championship this year and I'm sure some of the people that you were walking around with you may see in your same ED a little bit later <laughs> um, but oh, it's all about community involvement <laughs> Jordan, um, thanks so much. What an awesome research project. Um, great job, and congratulations on the job. Thank you. And joining us now, Jess Pham. She is the current PGY2 emergency medicine pharmacy resident at Denver Health, and very excited to announce she's staying on at Denver Health, transitioning to an EDICU clinical pharmacist position following in the path of yours truly which I love right jack of all trades so that's perfect um, now Jess is going to be coming on and talking about her SAEM research which is intravenous versus oral first dose antibiotics in the emergency department on hospital admission so Jess take it away all right thanks so much for the introduction I'll just get started on some background 
So we are all very aware that antibiotics are very commonly administered in the emergency department. And what we were interested in looking at was this very specific subset of patients who present to the emergency department for a chief complaint pertaining to an infectious disease, are otherwise hemodynamically stable, but their disposition from the emergency department is unclear in those initial stages of presentation. So to simplify, these patients may not be sick enough to be admitted right away, but otherwise are unwell enough to stay under our supervision and not be sent home right away. So in this specific subset of patients, patient-specific parameters aside, it could be difficult to extrapolate literature and current guidelines to dictate whether we start these patients off on an IV or a PO antibiotic. And you may hear in the emergency department, oh, let's just start these patients off with a one-time dose of an IV antibiotic, only to realize later, meaning on the next dose, that we transition them to PO anyway. So our current institution doesn't have a specific protocol to provide guidance on which route of administration patients receive prior to admission to our clinical decision unit or our CDU, which is our observation unit. The goal of this project was to evaluate that effect of an initial dose of an IV versus PO antibiotic on hospital admission in our patients admitted to the CDU. So we conducted a single center retrospective cohort study that assessed data from January 2021 to August 2022. We looked at adult patients who received a dose of an IV or a PO antibiotic prior to being transferred to the CDU. And we only looked at cellulitis and pyelonephritis as our infectious diseases, as those were the only pathways built out in the CDU at that point in time. And what we found was that for cellulitis, more patients were started off with PO compared to IV, Conversely, for pyelonephritis, more patients were initiated with IV compared to PO antibiotics. Interestingly, the median time to first dose of antibiotics was about three hours in our IV group compared to four hours in our PO group, and that was found to be statistically significant. But for our primary outcome of hospital admission, there were no differences between receiving IV or PO first. For secondary outcomes, there were no differences in total length of stay in the ED, which did include our CDU length of stay, no differences in final disposition in the patients who were admitted to the hospital. And then finally, we found that independent predictors of hospital admission included the CDU length of stay and the initial white blood cell count. So ultimately, what we concluded was that in our patients admitted to the CDU for cellulitis or pyelonephritis, whether we initiate antibiotics IV versus PO wasn't shown to have a statistically significant difference on hospital admission or total ED length of stay, and our findings provide a pretty strong case against one-time IV antibiotics prior to ED discharge. What a great research um, idea um, and kind of implementation, and you had mentioned in this that there isn't necessarily an antibiotic protocol for prior when patients go to like the CDU of what they should get or can't get. So, but when we're thinking of the ED in general, how do antibiotics typically get chosen? Is it an order set or is it more kind of provider specific kind of the wild, wild west? It's always the wild, wild west in the ED. Um, jokes aside, so there's no standardized order set, but we do have an antibiotic app that is specific to our institution, includes our antibiogram that helps provide guidance to our providers. So for example, for a purulent cellulitis, the recommendation is to, for outpatient management, start patients on a PO antibiotic, of course. But if they are admitted for purulent cellulitis, then vancomycin is the preferred agent. And that 
That said, we have guidance also for non-purulent cellulitis, for pyelonephritis. But again, not everything is black and white and not everything is the wild, wild west. We always look at previous culture data, consider antimicrobial stewardship philosophies, patient-specific characteristics. So we certainly see provider-specific variability, but I wouldn't say that that variability is anything unique to our institution. Yeah, I mean, it's guidance, but you're exactly right, right? The protocols work for 80, like 80% of the time. Um, so, you know, you have that extra people that you kind of need to sometimes get a little creative with. Um, the, the, the other big piece that kind of stood out, and you mentioned this in the results, was the time to first dose. So are there any working theories? And sometimes it's just, you know, we don't know. But are there any working theories as to delay in medication deliveries with, you know, PO versus IV, whether they're loaded in the omni cell or delivery or what have you? So the official answer is we don't know. Uh, for our working theories, Accessibility shouldn't be an issue because the antibiotics we typically choose for our patients in the ED are readily available in the Pixis machines. There might be a misunderstanding that IV is better than PO, which is part of the reason that we jump-started this project in the first place. So if there was that misunderstanding, then perhaps education might need to be in place. But again, the ultimate answer is we're not really sure. So my last question, anybody that's, that's done research projects, when I look, when, when I'm looking at some of the results or some of the things, one of the first things that enters my mind is this was either a very good, or this could have been a horrible data set to try to dig through. So Jess, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the absolute worst, I'm never doing research again. And one being like, oh my God, this was amazing. I had 10 research assistants. How terrible was the data collection and, and going through the data set? So from one to 10, with 10 being awful, I'd say it was probably a six. So it wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. I definitely did have the help of a couple of our pharmacy interns. So shout out to G and Dylan for the assistance. Um, That is something that I learned from my PGY1 project, where I certainly should have reached out for help a little earlier (laughs) and been a little more creative and thoughtful about just the project design in general. But because of everything that I have suffered through and everything that I have learned from my previous research (laughs) history, I'd say that this project went a lot better than previously. And I would definitely do research again, and I have ideas brewing currently. So it sounds like you, A, learned from, you put your finger on the stove in your first research, right? You learned from that, and then it got better. Um, that feels like the perfect spot, because you don't want it to be too easy or too hard. Because if you think it's too easy, suddenly you think every research project, right, is simple. But then if it's too hard, or you never want to do it again. So I feel like that five to six is a, is a perfect range, and what a, what a cool study idea. Um, Jess, thanks for joining. Man, hot in Denver right now in the streets. Were you uh, were you working last night with the uh, with the celebration? I was working last night, but I think I missed out on all of the festivities because I left right before it got really rowdy. Um, but I can tell you that I walked home, and on the way home, there were several individuals in jerseys, unhelmeted, on our favorite e scooters. <laughs> so I'm curious to see what happened afterwards. <laughs> My guess, when you saw the people leaving, were you like the like the Joker in the Dark Knight? You're leaving, the hospital's blowing up, and you're just walking away, not turning back, right? The, leave the chaos be behind. 
it absolutely could be it. All right. Well, Jess, thanks again. Appreciate you sharing your, uh, your awesome research and, and insight. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Wow. Uh, another huge thanks to the six pharmacists who were able to join me. Uh, that was awesome. Now, I wasn't able to highlight everyone, all the pharmacists who presented research at the SAEM annual meeting. So if you registered for that, if you went to that, be sure to check out all the other great pharmacist-driven research, right? And uh, if you enjoyed this, if you had questions, uh, reach out to the pharmacist and I, let us know what you thought. Um, myself at Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose, email pharmacy to dose at gmail.com or the website pharmacy to dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate. For over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmacy advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmacy advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. The user or patient should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care parent disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.